this for a while. We've we've got over 700 episodes published, and this is the first time someone has really broke down the business aspect, the percentages, how to make money, and where the money's coming from when it comes to writing music, streaming songs, selling records, and breaking down the industry. And Hollis does an amazing job of it. She was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, Petaluma to be exact. She talked about growing up there. Her mom had a Chinese restaurant that she ran and owned, and she worked there as a kid. Ended up going to high school in San Francisco, and she was huge into the hip-hop scene. She was big into rapping and, and spoken word. She took part in poetry slams. She was just really immersed in the hip-hop culture. Went to college in Seattle, and while there, did the same thing. Put herself around people in the poetry and hip-hop world. And through that, she formed her own hip-hop group, and she opened up for a bunch of people locally in Seattle, one of those artists being Macklemore. And through connections she made, being in the scene there in Seattle, uh, eventually meeting Macklemore, she was able to work directly with, with Macklemore on the song Wings. She was a part of the music video shoot and ended up helping kind of curate the song. She also worked with them on the song White Walls, and she's featured on that song. This is the Alma Heist record. They did this thing independently, and it blows up. Obviously, gets Grammy nominations and is nominated for Album of the Year. So she gets really immersed in the music scene very quickly. So she decides to move down to Los Angeles. Hollis talks about the hard work and dedication she had to put into really making it in in L.A. and how hard it was for her to get gigs and and try to replicate what what they did with that uh, Macklemore record, The Heist. She talked about working directly with Sean Wasabi, putting out her solo EP, Half-Life. She released that in February 2020, and then obviously the world shut down, canceled her tour, canceled all her live shows. So she tells us about moving on to the Joshua Tree for a month, keeping herself busy by doing Zoom writing sessions pretty much every day when she was in Joshua Tree. She tells us about her new record coming out in September and all about the brand new song she just released and the story behind it called Grace Lee. You can watch our interview with Hollis on our Facebook page and YouTube channel at Bringing It Backwards. It'd be incredible if you subscribe to our channel, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Bringing Back Pod. We'd appreciate your support if you follow and subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We're bringing it backwards with Hollis. This is all about you, your journey in music, and cool. how you got to where you are now. Great. Very cool. So first off, where were you born and raised? So I was born in the Bay Area. Um, so born in a little town called Petaluma, California, which is the southernmost city, southernmost town of Sonoma County. Um, okay. So about like, uh, you know, it used to be a 45 minute drive. I don't know what the drives are anymore from the Bay or from uh, San Francisco and from the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. Isn't it like pretty, what's, isn't it almost right over the Golden Gate Bridge? So that's think. like, uh, the town that's like right before the Golden Gate Bridge is called Sausalito. And that yeah. oh, Sausalito, that's County. what it is. Yeah. yeah Marin County. Okay. Yeah. So Petaluma is just right on the other side of it. Got it. Okay. Um, I lived up there for five years and I'm still like ah, graphically like trying to yeah. figure out where no, it's tough, is. For sure. I lived in the East Bay, so I didn't mm, really picture mm -hmm. much more than like Oakland, San Francisco. Um, but yeah, in the little sure. triangle, but <laughs> cool. So Petaluma, tell me about that. 
Yeah. So Petaluma, when I was growing up there, was like a very rural suburb of the Bay Area. Um, it was most known for being the former chicken capital of the world. Really? Um, yes. And thus, uh, our biggest annual event was the Chicken and Egg Day Parade. Uh, and that was like the highlight of my childhood was getting to put streamers on my bicycle and ride it in the uh chicken and egg day parade. Uh, so it was very like, yeah, very agrarian. Um, when I was growing up, my mom owned a Chinese restaurant in downtown Petaluma. And that was like, she had bought it when she was pregnant with me. Um, so she, through all throughout, uh, growing up in Petaluma, she owned that restaurant and that was kind of like, yeah, the context for my childhood, we spent like every day there. Um, I was like walking people to their tables with menus when I was like five and oh, packing wow. takeout orders when I was nine. So that was just the family biz. And um, yeah, so just small town vibes. Uh, and then eventually my folks would relocate to Marin County. And then I ended up going to high school in San Francisco. Uh, okay. And how did you get into music? So um, when I was five, I think I was like a natural ham, but I think, you know, my mom could tell that I was like ready to perform and I think ready to offload me. Uh, I think I was one of those kids that was just like constantly making noise. So she put me <laughs> in choir when I was five. Um, and so I sang in a pretty stodgy choir uh, throughout like elementary school, middle school, I got into musical theater. Um, I was just like really into the performance of the thing. And then I was like a pretty terrible piano player, but they put me in piano too. Okay. And the whole famous thing of like, you know, mom being like, you're going to regret not practicing piano and playing it one day. And I'm like, no, I won't. I hate it. And now I'm like, I absolutely regret Oh, sure. <laughs> having taken that seriously. Um, but also it's like, it's, you know, I think a big thing that I learned too, it's like, it's, it's who teaches you and how they're teaching you. Like, I think if I had had a teacher that was like, I want to enable you to express yourself creatively, like let's learn the fundamentals of piano versus being like, let's play this like right. totally stodgy composition that has no bearing on your popular cultural lens you know right, what I mean or like anything you want to do with it yeah yeah just, like exactly. or yeah where it feels like it's not connected at all to to my life you know sure um so yeah so I think like I I definitely like singing in choir I think is a lot of the reason why first of all I like love collaborating and second of all I think it taught me a lot of valuable skills in terms of like blending with people and working with people and listening um and not like being a soloist is one thing but when you have to like blend and work together uh with a team you know of vocalists it, it's uh it's a totally other skill set that I'm appreciative that I have the foundation for um but yeah so the, I I guess I got started in that way but I never like wrote my own songs I think I just never felt I kind of thought that that was just like a uh like a gene in my DNA that I was like lacking or like mm -hmm. I, I, I thought that like I could perform, I could sing, I could like be on stage and do musical theater. Um, and I love doing that, but I, I stopped short of feeling confident enough to like write my own music. When did, when did you gain the confidence to do that? Well, so it kind of started with me like 
uh, discovering spoken word poetry. Oh, so, okay. um, and a friend of mine is actually funny. I want to give a shout out to his name's George Watsky. He goes by Watsky. He's like, uh, he has a really great loyal fan base as an independent rapper, but I went to high school with him and he was kind of this trailblazing poet, rapper, freestyler, just like a kind of just this prodigious talent. Um, and he wrote a play that I was cast in in my our, like senior year of high school. And, you know, I was talking to him and I was like, oh, it's so cool that you can like write original stuff. Like all I know how to do is perform. And he was like, there's no reason why you can't do this too. Like, there's no reason why you can't like write a play or write a song or like write your own stuff. You don't have to always just be performing what other people have authored. Like you can do it too. And so he kind of gave me that confidence or just that opening and that, you know, just kind of fired up a potential mm -hmm. like, curiosity and believing in myself to be able to do it. Um, and I think, you know, I started getting into poetry and I was super like electrified by like youth poetry slams um, and just going and hearing young teenage people like write about their lives. Like oftentimes it was kind of like acapella raps and just like, it was just this vital type of art that I had never really seen before. Like I'd seen like popular culture, like Broadway musicals. And then there was like this, this other thing that was totally created by young people and voiced by young people and performed by young people. And in the Bay area, there's an organization called youth speaks that would throw these slams and they were like in the opera house. So it was like 2000 people watching like teenage poets. Wow. Read. So I was like, okay, this is tight. Like this is a type of stage that I want to be on. And so that kind of sparked my interest in like, okay, how could I write my own thing? How could I perform my own script, right? So mm -hmm. I moved up to Seattle for college and got in with Youth Speak Seattle up there and which was like a lot more like multi-generational and really collaborative and very like connected to political organizing and community organizing, which was really exciting for me uh, to just kind of have a place in a new city especially when you're like living in the dorms and you don't really know what's going on. Um, right. And I so, don't know too many people at that point. Yeah, exactly. And so just to have a community to drop in and then just be like, oh, cool. This is like aligning with like social justice and social change. And that feels like really good. So I ended up being on the like the Seattle Youth Slam team that went to the National Slams. And then we got into the finals, which was at the Apollo Theater. And so Whoa. I was like 19 with my like teammate who later would become my best friend, like performing at the Apollo Theater, performing our original poetry. And so that like her and I, uh, Maddie, she goes by Madline. She's a really dope MC. Uh, like her and I just started writing poetry together. And then we were like, you know what? We both like really love hip hop. We like don't really see young women in this space, especially in Seattle. Like, mm -hmm. let's just like try. Let's just like find some beats and like write some raps and see what happens. And so that was my first band when I was 19 was it was a hip hop duo called Canary Sing. So that was like the first time I started writing. But that was rap. And like I rapped for like three or four years before I felt confident enough to like write my own like melodic music. Really? So you just what wrapped what you had written down as far as poetry went? Yeah, I mean, we were like at that point, we just like became a hip hop group and like it was easier for us to like, you know, we were just like two teenage girls rapping. So like there was just nobody else like us in the music scene. So yeah, we were able to like. Were yeah, intrigued by that, I'm sure. Yeah, and like I think for us, like I was super into the Seattle hip hop scene when I had first moved there because I had already been into like independent hip hop and just like really into like being from the Bay Area, like an epicenter of indie rap and underground rap. Mm -hmm. Which, rest in peace, Gift of Gab from Blacklicious. But um, 
yeah. So when I went to Seattle, like that was a place where I felt like could be a touch point for me to better understand the city that I had moved to. So I was really into this, like my favorite band was called Blue Scholars. Um, I was really, Macklemore had just released his first solo album in 2005. Mm-hmm. And so I was really into that album. Uh, you know, Abyssinian Creole, The Physics. There was like so many awesome underground rap projects in Seattle that I was like, a huge fan of. And I'd like go and like be a fan of their shows. And then as soon as Maddie and I started rapping, like we kind of like met everybody all at once because it was a really like small and supported scene where everybody kind of knew each other. Um, so I was able to just like, uh, like immediately connect basically with a lot of the people that I had just like been following as a fan. Oh, okay. And it's, it's, that's how you uh, built the relationship then with Macklemore. And, and you, I mean, obviously you have a song on, on their record that's massive. Yeah. So with Macklemore, it's interesting because I got in with like Blue Scholars again, like was my favorite band. And I was really into Macklemore's music. And I think we had opened for him at a show because he was kind of like locally famous in the Seattle like scene. Like he already was kind of had a name for himself. And okay. he, he headlined a show um, at, Chop Suey, which is like a venue on Capitol Hill. And it was one of those like rap lineups where there was like nine, nine, nine acts people. on the yeah. yeah. And so we were like third of nine or whatever. And I remember I was super intimidated because I was like a fan. And so I was there and like he talked to like my bandmate Maddie, but like he didn't talk to me. And I was kind of like, oh, I like missed my opportunity to connect with Mac more. And like we had kind of like crossed paths a little bit, but I actually didn't connect with him specifically. But basically super long story short i was i was going to this venue restaurant um called hidmo that was uh in the central district in seattle which was kind of like an epicenter of the seattle hip-hop scene and through that i met uh i met this director named zia moharja jospi who was close with macmore and so we became friends and then zia basically approached me and was like hey like i asked Macklemore, if I could like direct a music video for him, I saw him rap this one verse acapella and I went up to him and I was like, I want to direct the video for whatever that song becomes. And so he was like, I want to do this thing. It's going to be really beautiful and cinematic. We're going to shoot it on Ari Alexa. Um, I need a producer. Do you want to produce the music video? And so for me, I was like, I was just down for whatever. Like that's mm-hmm. kind of been my motto throughout the whole <laughs> journey. It's just like, yeah, I'm down. Um, what what does it mean to produce a music video? What's an Ari Alexa? Like, what is every like I don't know, but I'm down to figure it out for no money because right. I was just down to learn. And I was excited about working with an artist that I admired and that I would love to like collaborate with. So it's really interesting because you know, we endeavored to do this music video. So it's Zia, the director, Macklemore, Ben, Ryan Lewis, and then myself. And so the four of us, but there was no song. There was just one acapella verse rap and an idea. Um, and so eventually, you know, TLDR, the song became the song Wings. And that actually became my first co-write because um, the song wasn't done and we needed the song to be done to make the music video. And so I ended oh. up getting in the studio with them and me and Ben wrote the the chorus of his song wings and then i went i have experience like teaching young people like in poetry so i went and like basically helped conduct a middle school choir to perform the hook that me and ben had written so like i said yes to producing this music video for free basically and then it became this like overarching um 
collaboration where I actually ended up doing my first co-write with them. And I, of course, I didn't know what a co-write was or what that even meant. I just like, mm-hmm. I helped write a hook with my friend. Um, but we, be- we all became really close through that, like really close collaborators became really scrappy. We did a Kickstarter, like we raised $50,000 on a Kickstarter and we were like shipping out Kickstarter merch. Like it was scrappy as hell, but through that, you know, we became really close and, and it, it was cool. Cause it was very like, a very holistic collaboration. Like they trusted me as a producer, as I was learning what it even meant to produce. And then they were trusting me as a musical co-collaborator. And like Ben really was the one who was like, Hey, like your rapping is dope. And I think that you're great at that, but like your singing voice is really awesome too. And like, you should really cultivate that. So again, like in the same way that George kind of like inspired me to believe in myself to like explore poetry for the first time, like I definitely credit um, Macklemore credit Ben for like, giving me that like boost of confidence to kind of explore um, songwriting in that way. That's amazing. And I've, and, and they came up like all independently, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they don't have any real, everything they do is all done independently. Yeah. And that's like, and so I was pretty close. I was close in on like the creation of that album, the heist, like, you know, between I produced the wings video and then I eventually produced the thrift shop video for them. And um, you know, I, co-wrote and then featured on white walls and when I went into the studio that day I thought that I was writing a hook for another artist that they would have like some singer come on and sing the hook that we wrote together and they were the ones that were like you sound great on this we're going to keep you on there and I mean that completely changed my life so like just their belief in me and I think a lot of it had to do with just because I was very I was a very dedicated collaborator to them like I felt mm-hmm. like I, I had a lot to learn under them I felt like they had already kind of achieved a type of like independent success and like we're just the hardest workers like and I was just like these are people that I really want to learn from and that I'm willing to kind of like dedicate my time to to build up um and yeah I mean it just was a really collective effort I mean myself and like dozens like a dozen more folks are really contributed to what ended up being like the success that nobody could have imagined it being yeah one of the biggest records ever I mean that (laughs) album's huge (laughs) right I mean, wow. And then it scores, it goes to the Grammys. And I mean, that must have been just like another level of totally success you probably didn't ever anticipate. And I was like shocked when I was like, I'm nominated for a Grammy, like at me, like what? (laughs) And like, I just didn't even like know like why or how. I just didn't know anything about the Grammys. I didn't know anything about the music industry. There's no, there's no music industry unless it's like rock, like sub pop or like, there's a couple of labels up in Seattle, but otherwise right. there's like no infrastructure. There's no publishing <laughs> company has their office set satellite office in Seattle. Right. Like we didn't even know what publishing splits were until something did well. And then we're like, Oh shit. You know what I mean? Like, so it's just yeah. like, there, there was just a lot that we didn't know. And I think that innocence is what created the conditions for this, like really beautiful, like very homegrown collaboration to emerge. But um, yeah, the Grammy thing was wild. And then, so coming down to LA, you know, I, people started hitting me up being like, oh, you're coming down for the Grammys. Like, do you want to do sessions? Do you want to do top lining sessions? I literally had to Google like, what is top line? I had no idea what they were talking about, but it was like a totally life-changing week for me because it just was the first time that I was like, oh, okay. Like me writing songs, isn't just like this recreational thing I do. Like this could actually be my life. This, I could make a career out of doing this. And like, I already have, you know, Mm-hmm. some sort of like calling card with my Grammy nomination and well and it's funny too because it's like 
I was not, I was nominated for a Grammy because I was a featured artist on an album that was nominated for be- for album of the year. So it's not even has to, it doesn't even have to do with my songwriting. Like I could have not written any songs on the album and just come in and sang, but if I'm credited, that's but you're credited as a writer, you know what I mean? Right. Like, it's and a also different like, level than like, oh, we want to have you just sing the hook. Totally. But I mean, but even if, but if somebody else had sung the hook, I wouldn't have the Grammy nomination. You know, it's just the way the technicalities. Of oh, the is that right? So just yeah. So it's, it's featured, featured artist because I'm a featured oh. artist. I mean, I could have sang on the thing and if they didn't give me the credit, then there's no Grammy nomination. I think there's, they're always kind of like switching it up a little bit. So it's like, for example, like even though I'm featured on and sang on the album, they won best hip hop and R&B, but I didn't win a Grammy. You know what I mean? And some people, I think sometimes will be like, I won and like, whatever, people should just take the accolades that they can get because these institutions are, let's just say problematic, but at the end of the day, uh, with all due respect to Grammy.org. But I think like, you know, I I just, for me, it just opened up a window for me in terms of the possibility of making music a true career. Cause I just, at that juncture, I just like really didn't see it for myself. I just saw it as something that I love to do and I felt like I had to do. And I like, you know, I had chosen to do and stick with. Um, but at that junk, that point I was like, Oh, this is amazing. And I like loved there's just like pure adrenaline of like getting in with strangers and writing songs and just like being in LA just felt like so shiny and like full of possibility. And so I was like, okay, like I'm going to move to LA. I'm going to be a songwriter. Like this is what I'm going to do. Um, yeah. So did you, they ended up moving pretty soon after that or did you finish school, college or moving? So yeah, I had finished college at that point. Um, I graduated in 2010 and the Grammys were in 2012 and I moved here in 2015. And, um, you know, I think I, yeah, it's been, (laughs) it's felt like many lifetimes since I initially moved and packed up my car, packed up my Honda Accord in Seattle and drove down to Los Angeles, just like, you know, I was just like, oh, this is the most cliche shit ever. Like (laughs) (laughs) living in this tiny ass, hot as hell, no AC room in Highland Park with a terrifying cat. And I was just out here. Um, And yeah, I think it just gave me it, but it was, I was proud of myself because at that point, you know, I was in my like mid to late twenties. And I think Seattle is such a beautiful city and I have such an amazing community there. And it's like a really like comfortable place for me to be. Like, it's very familiar. There's just like, it's just so, it just feels great there. But I think I knew that I needed to push myself into being like a bolder version of myself. I needed to challenge myself. I wanted to be like, see what it was like to be a tiny fish in the biggest pond when it comes to like music and arts and culture and mm-hmm. just um, not really like rest on my laurels in a way that I felt like I kind of was when I was up in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Was it hard to kind of break out when you got to LA? I mean, obviously you had the, like you said, the writing credit and the nomination to kind of uh, on your resume, so to speak, but like, was it hard to get in and, and like, how do you really advance your career? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of it was learning. I think, uh, uh, I first, I think I had to really develop my craft as a songwriter. I think I had been really lucky with the breaks that I got with my friends when I wasn't even thinking about how it was going to chart. I mean, charting it being on Billboard top hot 100 was not even was the furthest thing from our minds when we were making it. Like, if anything, we were like, we'll get to do an indie tour, like, you know, and Mm -hmm. perform these songs like or do our local festivals up in Seattle. But Um, you know, I kind of had these highfalutin ideas that I was just going to like come to LA and like 
write huge smash number one hits for pop artists and like do this whole thing. And, you know, I did the whole, like spent a year just hopping from session to session, like, you know, and, and in some ways that was really great for me because I got to just like learn this city better, which is its own kind of beast and um and you know meet people and see what worked and what didn't and what vibed and what didn't and like when things felt really like weird like recognizing that and you know not feeling like I had to take every opportunity I think I had I learned a lot about vetting I'm I'm like a compulsively social person and a compulsive collaborator and I think what I learned through that process was like how to be more selective with my time and my creativity. And like, I know that like there was one, I mean, I definitely hit like a low point, like in the first couple of years that I was here where I felt like I was doing sessions like five to seven times a week. You know, you don't get paid up front. You're driving an hour to get to the places you're pouring yourself out creatively. And then you're realizing, okay, like so many of these demos are just sitting in people's hard drives and they're never going to see the light of day. And so I just started feeling really, uh, doubtful about my choice to have done this at all, you know? And I think I was like, okay, like I, you know, had this type of success and it was just like all really easy and facilitated. And now I'm like bopping across the city, bopping between collaborators, like trying to do my best work, but like, I'm not getting any compensation up front. I'm losing money by the day. And I'm like, you know, I'm just feeling really, um, really like, hopeless about like what Mm -hmm. was there. And I think that's when I really realized I was like, you know, my, my, you know, superpower as it were, just like my strength, I think comes in my ability to build relationship and trust with collaborators. And I think that's the reason why, like, I'm grateful that I was able to like meet and connect with Macklemore and Lewis, because I feel like we really built very organically, we built that trust and that knowledge of each other. And it allowed me to kind of like push them in ways that I was able to as a songwriter and as like Mm -hmm. a collaborator, because I knew them and they trusted me and they respected me. And I realized this whole kind of like writing a hot hit and it landing in an A&R's inbox and the A&R sending it to the student, like that's like a myth, right? Like it's such a fallacy. And I didn't know how things worked (laughs) because the way that I had my charting hit you know, was because of, of a close friendship. So I realized that I was like, oh, I've actually been like prioritizing the wrong thing. Like what I actually need to be prioritizing are the relationships that I'm building. And like, especially in today's age, I think that it used to be a paradigm where it's like songwriters got together, wrote a song and then shipped it to the artist. And the artist was like, cool, I'm going to cut it just like that. Like mm-hmm. artists are, are way, they feel like they want to be way more invested. They want to be in the room in some capacity. They want to feel like the writing that they contributed to the writing in some way, even if they didn't really contribute to the writing in some way, but like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah, it's no, very, totally. it's very rare that, a, that a song just like, you know, it's, it's, it happens obviously, but it's, it's in the, it's a small percentage of, of hit songs that happen that way. So what I realized for myself is like, Oh, I actually just need to be start building relationship with, with recording artists. Like if this mm-hmm. is what I really want to do as a songwriter, I think the other thing too is that I started learning more about the music business and the way that you actually do earn music in songs. And like, for me, I was very lucky because I, you know, contributed and had like a percentage of a song that did very well on radio. I saw those BMI checks come in and the public performance checks come in. And I was like, hell yeah. Like I'm very much down to do this. You know what I mean? Like it was exciting to see that come in, but I didn't know anything about what that income was coming from. I didn't understand the difference between a writer's and a publisher's there. I didn't even know the difference between a compositional copyright and master's recording copyright. Like there was so much I wasn't aware of and I didn't know how it worked. And at the end of the day, I was like, oh, 
I'm chasing being a songwriter on, on one side of the record, right? Given that there's two types of compositional copyright and the way that streaming, especially, you make so much more money on the master than you do for the pub, right? Mm -hmm. So I was like, yeah, I'm chasing the pub, which is like a fraction of the total income that you can make on streaming music. And I have been completely, I completely put myself as an artist to the side and was like, I'm just going to focus on songwriting when really I was like, oh, actually I need to activate and fire up me, whether it's a featured artist or an artist again, because like just to make it more financially sustainable for myself, it's way, way better for me. And like, I was just reminded of that yesterday when I got a royalty check last yesterday for last year's like me having master's share on an indie release that has streamed really well. And like the money is just like incomparable to how much I would get on the publishing side. So it's like, it just, I, I realized I had to be a little bit more savvy and like really diversify my revenue streams and mm -hmm. not just be singularly focused on like this very like pie in the sky thing of like getting another top 20 hit as a songwriter right. when really, and also I was just, I think part of my depletion is I was feeling like creatively choked in the process and I hadn't really tapped in. I'm like, I'm so busy like facilitating other people's music and writing with other people. And it's like, what do I actually have to say as an artist? Mm -hmm. So that was like well, a lot of the learning for me. Just to clarify for people listening and, and myself included, publishing side, if, writing the record and then pitching it and getting it picked up and versus the mastering. The mastering is when you're like physically on the record, correct? So the master recording. So basically like the, as you said, the, if you contribute to the original composition of a song, like in all, in theory, you should own a fraction of the compositional copyright. Correct. So, yeah. um, so that is the, is what we call publishing, publishing, right? So it's like, if you and I write a song together and we split the publishing 50, 50, then you own 50%, I own 50%. Right. Mm -hmm. And then if a third person covers it, you like, you know, you and I still get a, a royalty off of that. The master recording is oftentimes like if you're releasing music on a label, then the label owns the master recording, right? Gotcha. And the artist receives a percentage, like a revenue share of that. So like sometimes it's like 11%, other times it's like 50%. And then if for some reason, like sometimes if you're like a producer, they'll ask for points on a master. So that means that they're going to ask for like, uh, also some revenue to come in from the master recording that comes out of the artist share. So say the, the label owns hundred percent, the artist is getting, let's say 15%. And then if you're the producer and you're like, Oh, I want, you know, I want to get some revenue off of the master side too, because as I just said, you make a lot more money on the master than you do on the publishing. Right. Uh, then that's coming out of the 15%. The artist. Oh, yeah. sure. So, so the artist like, is like, okay, I'll kick you 5% or whatever. Sure. But that's, you know, but 5%, you know, it's it 5% of your 15%. Of the 15 yeah, so now exactly. you have 10%. That part. So exactly. Interesting. So, so that's, and that's, that's the label. So if it's indie, you own the master and it's up to you how you divide it. And I think this is like a lot of what gets complicated or complex with artists who don't really know how to like, who don't really have the language or the uh, vocabulary or the understanding of how these things work. So oftentimes what like you know if you assert like i want a percentage of a master as a songwriter it's unless you're like a top tier songwriter like it, it would be very hard to be like i want a master point but producers get master points quite a bit 
in addition to often a production fee. So the money up front, which songwriters very, very rarely see. Oftentimes songwriters like don't get paid anything up front and you get your first royalty check if you're lucky, like a year after the song is released because it takes them three quarters to collect. So it's just songwriters and I, I very much commend them. I think there's a couple of organizations like, I know Sona, The Pact, um, and The 100 Percenters. Like, there's a lot of uh, collectives now of songwriters that are getting together to talk about, like, we actually get the short end of the stick in all of these circumstances, like, mm-hmm. as because of digital streaming in the way that it's monetized, far more money goes to the master share than it does to the publishing share in a way that it didn't necessarily when they were selling physical records. Very so, interesting. Thank yeah. you so much for clarifying that, because I wasn't... Yeah. I was kind of more on the, I was in the mindset that if you were on the record, then you're considered on the master. And then, if well, you- so like a featured artist, it depends. You just never know, right? Because every okay. deal is different and there's no industry standard and there's no, okay. no union is representing us. Right. So, you know, um, and like, and there's actually a really great organization that's based in DC called Future of Music that does lobbying and advocacy for music creators. And they recently tweeted something the other day, which is like, you know, for public performance, uh, you know, a song, a songwriter gets a royalty, uh, but the artists, if they don't have songwriting on it, they don't, they don't get a royalty for public performance. And there's just like a lot of strange little loopholes. And the problem is that we have big tech companies like Amazon and like Spotify, like actively, actively challenging, like anytime songwriters like get any sort of advancement and the like the increase in royalty there's like some of the biggest companies in the world are suing essentially and like appealing these these choices um so it's very complex and it's like it's difficult to navigate um you know when you hear an artist on a on a track it's possible that they have a master share it's possible that they just got a buyout and somebody they got paid a thousand dollars and it's like thank you for your time and the song could be massive and sell 20 million or you know or like stream like 50 million streams mm-hmm. and it's totally possible that a featured artist that's on that song just got that one check and is out and that's why it's really really important for songwriters and artists and everybody to like have a really clear understanding of what they're agreeing to before they sign like there's no such thing as just a, like oh this is just standard like just sign it like that is oftentimes used so that music creators are completely shut out of the income that they could be generating from royalties. Wow. Cause a lot of the time I would, I would, I wonder if like you wrote a song and it pitched to a major artist mm-hmm. and they took it, mm-hmm. wouldn't they just, a lot of times don't they just pay you out? Like, okay, here's X amount of money for the song or is it? Maybe no, I think it depends. Like as I, much. I think if you're with a publisher, like a publisher just wouldn't allow that they would be okay. like, you know, but, and also too, I think sometimes that's true. And sometimes what will happen is, you know, artists would be like, okay, we're, you know, like, or this is what the pact, this organization that, of songwriters that I've seen pop up on Instagram is is talking about is that sometimes like A-list artists didn't contribute to the original composition at all. Right. But then all of a sudden their people are like, oh, well, they're going to want 15% of pub just because by virtue of like, well, they're platforming the song. Yeah, so we want to get, and you know, from their perspective, they're like, we want to get cut in on both sides of the song. And like, you know, they're like, okay, well, if this gets covered by a random singer like and that cover you know makes money then that artist is like well they're only covering it because i i originally think so i should be able to get a royalty on that but i think what songwriters are saying is like we don't ever get paid like we don't get an upfront (laughs) fee like producers get 
where you don't get an advance like artists on a label get. We're certainly not making the type of money that labels are making because labels, when they're making money and they don't have to pay out artists until artists have earned back their their advance advance, for their percentage. So they, it's, it's not total gross income coming in. Like it's the percentage that you negotiated that you're getting. It's like, you have to earn back on that percentage on that 15%. So it's just using the money, the 15% that you're getting. So it's essentially like you're making back the the advance off your small percentage of the song. (laughs) You nailed it. You got it. It's quite the industry. So I think with songwriters, a lot of songwriters are like, yo, again, like I go back to me. I will never forget. I'm just sitting on the side of the road. I haven't eaten. I'm sitting in my like shitty Honda Accord. It's my fifth or sixth session of the week. And I'm just like, what am I doing? Like, this is, I like, who do I like, what is this game? Because it's like, nothing is sure. I don't feel like anybody's advocating for me at that point. I didn't really, I didn't have a manager that like knew the songwriting world. Like I was getting cool sessions, but like for, to what end, like I just, you know, there's so many unknowns and certainties and, you know, for every one song that even comes out by an independent artist, there's like a hundred songs that are left on a hard drive somewhere. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's hard, especially like, you know, the, I don't know if you uh, checked out like the Annenberg uh, school at USC. They did a really comprehensive study about women in the music industry and talking about how, you know, perceptibly it seems like there's gender equity in the music industry because you see like huge blockbuster yeah, female artists as much as you do with yeah. women or uh-huh. do with men. But when the, you look at the stats and y'all should check out the USC Annenberg uh, like study on women in the music industry, like only, and they, they looked at like top, billboard top 100 hits over like 10 years which i'm actually like a data point in there because of my song uh with macklemore mm-hmm. but like it's only like 22 percent of songwriters are women and really? like and as artists like it's only like it's it's not even i think 40 percent. and then there was this whole thing too where it's like you don't like it's very very rare it's almost always like solo female artists you very very rarely see women in bands sure get flaunted to that position that is a good point and there's a lot more diversity in terms of like the types of like creative expression with men than there is so anyway all that to say reading those statistics was like very validating for me because i was like oh i just thought that like i was just not good enough like i had like an inferiority complex yeah Yeah, and i was just like oh it's because it's not easy for us like this isn't this is not an easy space to navigate period for songwriters. Like any songwriter that dares to do it, like is a brave soul because it's tough and, and the money, just the consistency and the stability, it's just not there. And so it's like, and a lot of people find ways to do it and keep it going, whether that's like teaching or gigging or, you know, getting on sound better and like getting, doing work for hire. Like there's a lot of different ways that folks navigate it, but Mm -hmm. ultimately like the most tragic stuff is when you see a really talented songwriter, they might have some success and then they sign this binding agreement because they thought it was going to advance their career and it ended up completely halting it in its tracks. And I've seen that unfortunately way too much. I'm so thankful. I got offered a couple of publishing deals right when I moved to Los Angeles. And I'm so, so thankful that I didn't sign them because in some ways I felt like I needed that validity. I wanted a company to believe in me and I wanted to sure. like you're a professional songwriter and it would have completely killed my desire. And I think, I mean, who's to say, but like, I just have seen it with so many artists or so many writers 
feeling like yeah. they need to sign a deal. Because there's be a little bit of stability there, right? Don't you get some of the publishing deals? Don't they give you like some very low salary at some, some they can some they, they'll give you an advance but again you're earning it back oh, earning on it your back. percentage got you wow that's fascinating information because yeah. like especially with the with the female artists because like i'm just while you're talking i was trying to think off the top of my head like the biggest artists i can think of right now are all females are but women. they're yeah. yeah but they're not part of a band i mean if you think like the Halseys and Taylor Swift's and Doja Cats right. and Megan the Stallion. Like I can name, uh, keep going. Like uh, Olivia Rodrigo is huge right now. Like sure, all those sure. artists, yeah. but like they're only they're a solo artist. They're not right. It's like Haim. I would say it's like the only. Oh yeah, like, that's band a big one. Like, yeah, really, but just like one. You know what right, I mean? Versus right, right. like I mean in so, the nineties are a bit more or female fronted bands, but like not oh, yeah. now, not nowadays. Yeah. That's interesting. So, I mean, there's a lot there, right? But I think that I've just had to learn a lot. And and I'll just plug to, I'm actually working on a series right now with the music company Splice. And we released an episode that's called uh, What is Music Copyright? And I do, I hopefully do a good job of breaking down what the two types of music copyright are, compositional copyright and master recording copyright, um, and the ways in which they're monetized with some like anecdotes about how it plays out in person. And just, you know, I, I feel like I'm getting my masters in like music business just to be uh like a conscious educated songwriter it's really yeah. really complicated and i think it's complicated by design i think they made this completely impenetrable for the regular music creators so that we could be easier exploited but sure. you know that's that's me <laughs> that's interesting I, I would love to watch your your so yeah, you yeah said, i'll send it to you okay yeah that's yeah. That's fascinating because yeah. I mean, that's why I, I love this. That's why I wanted to start this podcast. It's just so yeah. people could understand, like, how do you become successful in this industry? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a great I'm not a songwriter or a musician myself, but I right. love and appreciate music. And I've been in radio forever. And that was my in like, oh, yeah. well, I that's can't cool. write and perform, but I can. Yeah, I can hear a hit, I think. <laughs> you know what I mean? But totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's well, it's, it takes, different... it's yeah, it's an environment. It's like a it takes it's an ecosystem, right? So sure. we need folks like you that are like super passionate about music, passionate about the people's stories behind it. Like it matters so much like that type of support and encouragement for artists. Cause it's so, when you're confronted with like the difficulty of this industry, it's so hard to feel encouraged. So it's like folks like yourself, like whether that's in radio or like even this podcast here, it just like provides an encouragement and an affirmation that is so much more valuable than is even like understood. Like, oh, but I know that artists you. who are listening to this, like know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I can imagine it being very hard to feel like validated in the industry, especially like you had some success, but then it's like, all right, I have the success. I got a Grammy nomination. Then I'm moving to LA right. and it's like now, nah, okay, now what? Like I, right. the next big Malcolm project, didn't just like knock on my door. Totally. Right. No, exactly. I mean, and like, and you start thinking, okay, was that a one-off? Am I fraudulent? Am I really not good enough? And I think yeah. what I realized was one, as I was mentioning, it's about developing relationships with artists. And that's what I feel very grateful to have done with a few different artists. Um, shout out to Sean Wasabi, who I love him. Yeah. He's the best. I, I um, interviewed him for the spot. I had him you did? for a oh, great. Yeah. yeah. So I am really thankful that him and I crossed paths and that we were able to develop to, to develop a close friendship and collaborative relationship. And so, um, you know, when he got signed to Warner and he released his debut album last year, you know, I had four, 
four co-writes on that project in addition to our independent songs. And that was my first major label release, like as a songwriter. So that was really validating. That's um, huge. Yeah. I guess and, you're on, you're on Otter Pop. What, uh, yeah. are you, where, what other uh, cuts did you have with him? On so I wrote, um, I wrote Hello Hollow. I wrote um, Home Run. I wrote uh, Snack That Smiles Back. And like, yeah, it was just really fun. Wow, like, that's so cool. Yeah, um, all like a lot of that, like at Justin Trader's house, which is like so wild that that was like Sean's studio for a number of years. So um, yeah, I'm just thankful that, I'm just thankful that we crossed paths. And that to me, I realized, I was like, this is, this is the type of relationship I want to foster. And this is where I'm ultimately going to be successful as a songwriter is if I feel like I can really develop trust and rapport with the artist, and then I can get an insight on who they are and what they love and like what they want to say um, and then take it from there. And so that's kind of been my model. It's actually less to me now about like songwriting, which is really important and kind of like my core, like, craft but it's like artist development you know like mm -hmm. in a true way is like you're really working alongside the artist to be like what do you want to say and like who like what are you what do you really want to say and what do you want to be do saying every night on stage theoretically mm -hmm. sure tbd but um you know like it's 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 a lot more gratifying to feel invested in that versus kind of you know this whole like rihanna's looking it's like okay girl right, is she right. looking <laughs> um, you know, that kind of thing. I see what and, you're saying, yeah, because you're working directly with Sean Wasabi and yeah, you're writing yeah. the song. And you're, yeah, like you said, it's more of an artist development thing where you guys are collaborating directly and working towards something as that instead of you writing a, you know, work and being like, hey, you you want to sing this, Rihanna? Or, you know what, you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't Which, know. Which, you know, and Party Next Door has done really well by writing <laughs> some songs and Drake and Rihanna just being like, that's my swag now. Sure, and I, sure. But I think that's a lot of it too, is like to have that kind of like undeniable songwriting, you have to develop as an artist. And I realized like, so I, you know, I did write a song. Um, I One of the songs that's going to be on my album that's coming out in September was me and Ryan Lewis getting back in the studio. And he, we wrote a song that like, I basically ripped the lyrics out of my journal. It was during COVID. We both, we all got like triple tested before we went into the space. And I like, you know, brought my journal and I read some stuff that I had written the day before. And we wrote a song and it was like a hundred percent me in the song, like totally like my vibe, my thing, whatever. And then the next week he was like, oh yeah, this like X, like A-list artist, artist yeah. was in the studio and I played her the song and she really liked it and would be down to cut it. And I was like, look at that. Like so often, like we feel like, oh, we need to write, like, what is she going through? Like, what is she into? Like what, it, but I wrote a song that was like 110% just me mm -hmm. and that artist, like she didn't end up cutting it and I'm going to use it on my project, but like it ended up, be, that's what resonated. And that's what organically came to be. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I was just like, if anything, I think that's a lesson in that, like, uh, you, you know, you can speculate and project what other people want to say, but if it's so much more like true, if you just write from your own perspective, it's like so much more likely that somebody's going to resonate with that mm -hmm. versus feel, uh, like they're being seen by your projection of what they would want to sing about or who they would, who you think they are. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. It's like people are going to, they're going to resonate with what you're saying. Cause they probably have gone through something similar. Yeah. And I then, mean, that's the point of music, right? It's yeah. like universal feelings, but they're, they're so sure. deeply personal. Wow. So when did you decide to go and, or not go, but when did you decide to start focusing on your, 
your solo project and, and you, yeah. I mean, you put a record out. I did. Yeah. So I released an EP last, uh, last February and was going to tour it all year. And then it all shut down. And then it all shut down. Uh, <laughs> but that was a really important process for me because I think I had realized I was like, oh, I've been doing songwriting. And then like what I understand is artist development for so many other people, but I like haven't been giving myself that same opportunity. Like I haven't been like nurturing my own artistry. And I think I was afraid for a lot of like, you know, for so long, like I was, you know, I was in my band with Maddie, we were Canary saying we were rapping. And then I was in a um, band and still am with uh, my two friends in Seattle. And I, you know, I had done feature collaborations and what have you, but I'd never done something on my own. And I think it was that typical, like imposter syndrome, like I'm not enough on my own or like, you know, if I just try to make it on my own and I don't do well, it's going to be devastating. And like, I'm going to feel so sad. So I might as well just not even try. And it really just, I realized that I was really choking back like myself as an artist, like I was writing for other people, but like, I wasn't, I had to really like be brave enough to figure out like, what did the artist within me say? And like, how can I work to develop her and recognize that like, she was worthy of that investment just as much as the other artists that I'd been working with. Mm -hmm. Um, so writing that project was definitely like a huge moment for me to just be like, okay, like stop, we put down the external affirmation, put down the need to like constantly be validated. Like, how do you internally validate yourself? How do you create the music that you want to make? And I think part of it too, is that it's like, I just kind of am like a little dark inside. Like I'm a little morose and like depressive and emo. And I think part of it was just like, no, don't show the world that you're that way. Like be sunny and bright forever. And so I think I also just had to like embrace the angst. Sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so creating that project was really great. I met a couple of collaborators that I'm still working with. My guy, Chucky Kim, who's a producer, um, my amazing mixing engineer, Blue, who uh, he works with anyone from like Solange to Blood Orange to Teishi. Like he works with incredible people and he's such a great collaborator on my project and on my music um, and just build up my confidence as an artist again. And again, just like it was it was necessary for my like emotional and psychological well-being to like develop my artistry and then also I was just like well if I really do want to make music my career like diversify the revenue streams like it is good to have music where I own 100% of the master mm -hmm. like as an independent artist that I'm the featured artist that you know so um you know why not give myself the opportunity to express myself and potentially to earn sure myself. exactly yeah it's all you this time around, right? right. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, obviously the world shut down right thereafter and, and plans were pushed or canceled. Then what, what was next? Or did you have to try to write? I mean, you talked about being in the studio with Ryan Lewis, but what else did you have going on during this, this whole yeah. like, virus over the course of the last totally. year Totally. So I was in this room <laughs> Okay. Um, and I just, I put down music for like, a lot a, a while like uh, like as soon as the tour got canceled I was just really not feeling like performing on zoom or doing like live streaming stuff I did do a live stream series that eventually kind of morphed into more of a talk show where I like kind of almost like a like a live podcast where I would bring folks on and we would talk about how they were experiencing the pandemic like artists restaurant owners uh community oh, wow. organizers it kind of became this ad hoc fundraiser and I learned a lot about live streaming technology and so I actually you know I more pivoted to just doing what I could because I survived before as a live performer and doing live events and, you know, I had to do some other thing. And, um, 
it was tough. It definitely felt like a death. Like I, there were a few months there that I didn't know if I would ever like pick up music again, because I just, it just felt really hopeless. I just didn't know, you know, I think it's hard. Like we're, we were sold this narrative for so long as artists, like live isn't going anywhere. It's recession proof. Like you're, right. gonna, you know, and, and then of course a pandemic hits and we are like, Oh, actually live is the least is the one that's gone completely. <laughs> so, you know, I think for me, I, and I definitely didn't feel like it. Ryan was the only session that I did in person. I definitely didn't feel safe like doing sessions. And, and I honestly like, wasn't, you know, I wasn't producing my own music. Like I wasn't feeling very motivated to just go to my keyboard and tool around. I was just feeling really unmotivated. And I think it was towards the end of last year that I, you know, was like, okay, well maybe I'll try to like do one session. I had been connected to these two guys in Paris. Um, and they were like, what do you want to do a zoom session? And I was like, I mean, sure. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Let me figure it out. Let me see if I can. And I'm dialing in my logic and like figuring it out. And then like between December of last year and like April of this year, I started to really get into a flow of working with collaborators on Zoom and like uh, getting better at like tracking myself on this microphone and like getting a clean signal for my waves and like messing around with pre presettings and like plugins so that I could feel good about what was coming on playback. And I just... I leveled up a lot as like a at home recording engineer in a way that I mm -hmm. never really had to before. And I, I found my confidence in that again and kind of found a beauty. And like, I think I had been so collaboratively obsessed that I hadn't really figured out how to do it on my own in a way that felt good. And, you know, so I ended up writing, you know, I'm going to be releasing an album in September and a hundred like, or all but one song was written over zoom. Really? And yeah. So, um, I think for me, you know, I actually, in February, I went to Joshua Tree by myself. I did a whole month alone in a house out there because I was like, well, the amount of money I would have spent on like studios and like people coming in and other people tracking me to write my album, let me just take that money and rent a house for a month. And it's just me and the laptop and my 7B and my little interface and Zoom. And I basically treated it like a writing camp. I scheduled sessions nearly every day and worked with people in Seattle and New York and Paris and LA, like in all these different places, but it was just me in the desert by myself with a laptop. <laughs> that is, wow. Yeah. Oh, wow. And then in the meantime, like when you weren't doing the sessions, were you just there, you're just there by yourself? There by myself, kind of staring into space, but also working. Like I picked up basically a whole like full-time job, like outside of, um, music because I just had, like, I wasn't going to qualify for unemployment because my uh, income was so scattered. So it's like, I was just like, okay, I got to like get to work and do some other stuff. And so I ended up kind of having this hybrid, I was doing like communications and also doing, um, like, uh, producing, uh, virtual fundraising events for, oh, cool. for nonprofits. So yeah. And I, I kind of come from a nonprofit and communications background. So I was able to kind of activate that again and, and really kind of like cast off any sort of stigma that I think sometimes haunts artistic and creatively minded people that are like bold enough to be like, I want to do this for a living. And sometimes I feel like we have to pretend like we don't have other income streams or like that. Right. We don't take other jobs. Like we have to pretend like we're, we're living a good life. Right. Right. It's like when it's so hard to do that. Like so I think I had impossible. to, you know what I mean? And so I really had to acknowledge that for myself, especially being an independent artist. It's like, no, I don't have a label that's bankrolling anything. Like I need to pay for like 
all of like mixing, mastering, all of my album art, my music videos, like the marketing that's so important now, especially to do digital marketing campaigns for all of your music. Like this stuff really, really stacks up with money. And it's like, even if I were making money, like if there had been no pandemic and I was just making money as a performer as I had before, you know, there's a reason why people sign to labels. It's not because everybody loves to be in like this, this relationship where they're only making a fraction of their master recording. Right, like it's right. because there's You're a on. bank and you want to use, I mean, you want to use the staff and you want to use the resources of a label, but it's also like money, like people need money. And, yeah, and like, they're a platform. Exactly. They, they can put money into the digital marketing. And Exactly. The, yeah. yeah. So it's like when you're an independent artist, you really like, I think that's what it took me a little while to realize, like being an independent artist isn't just like being an independent artist and not having a label. It, it means that you are your own label. And so you have to really think about, okay, what are all the functions that a label provides to an artist? And how am I supplementing that with people on my team? Like, how am I, how do I have a marketing plan or a marketing consultant? Like, how am I leveraging my manager? Like, how what, am I doing PR? Am I not doing PR? Like, there's just so much to figure out. It's a whole other job, you know, mm -hmm. for, for artists. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so you had to really take, put on a bunch of different hats over the course of, of this pandemic, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. And you, you came out with, you have a record coming out, obviously. In I September, do, yeah. And, then I'm hyped. You, and you released a song called Grace Lee recently. Is that yes. going to be on the record? And tell it me about is, the song. Yeah, so that song will likely be the last song on the album. Um, Grace Lee, I wrote as inspired by Grace Lee Boggs, who uh, was a Chinese-American activist who primarily lived and worked in Detroit. And I had learned about her early on, like when I was kind of in my like independent hip hop spoken word community, I had learned about Grace Lee Boggs and she has this really beautiful quote uh, that's like called the time, the time has come to reimagine everything and talking about how we just need to move away from the structures that we feel like are inescapable. Like we just kind of feel like, oh, that's the way it is. Like the prison industrial complex is just the way it is. Like everything's just the way it is. And the idea and what she provoked us to think about is how can we step back and dream something better and work towards that instead of trying to like incrementally reform that, which is because it's so not working for so many of us. So I was very inspired by that. And then Actually, when I was in Joshua Tree, I started reading her autobiography, Living for Change, and there was so much resonance. Like I told you earlier, like I grew up in a Chinese restaurant, my mom's Chinese restaurant. Like she also mm -hmm. grew up in her dad's Chinese restaurant. And like oh, wow. she was like super like into philosophy in high school or in college. I was super into philosophy. So I just like saw these resonance with her. And that was really like I just felt really like connected to her in a lot of ways. And then luckily, uh, Chucky Kim, one of my closest collaborators, we would do a weekly Zoom session to mm -hmm. write. And I had just come off of like reading a chapter of the book. And I was like, hey, like, I actually am thinking that I'd love to write a song about Grace Lee Boggs because I don't think there is one. And she's really inspiring me right now, just like with all of her philosophy and her theories about social change work and how and how like what I really love about what she has talked about in her work is like how imagination and creativity are at the center of social change. And so artists aren't just kind of these decorative things to like, you know, they're not just like on the outskirts of social change, but artists really need to be artists and creativity need to be at like the center of social change work. And so that really like made me feel like I had a place. Cause sometimes when you're a musician, it just feels really like self-promotional to the point of self-aggrandizing and like there's you know what I mean you're just like this is really really egotistical and whack right. like sure <laughs> like look at me you know I kind of shy away from 
self-promotion. And I think like her words really made me feel like, okay, like I can like be, have integrity and like have my artistry really be deeply connected to making the world a better place. So I was really fortunate because Chucky, my collaborator, he had actually spent time with Grace Lee Boggs before she passed away in her home for an afternoon. So he had all these notes from when he had spent time with her, these amazing stories. And so him and I wrote the song together and it felt very, you know, I think like, I'm not like a religious person, but for me, like there's a spirituality to music and to like honoring those who have come before, like, in song and in music. So it just felt really special to me. And I just wanted to just offer up something to, to better make her story known to like, be able to talk with you on your platform today about Mm -hmm. this woman who I think was so incredible and deserves to be like better known and better studied and, and better celebrated. And so, yeah, it was meaningful to me and I'm excited to have it as part of the album. That's cool. You said it's going to be the final song. Is there a reason you put it last? It just felt like a good closer. I think, again, like that idea that like I want this project and I want my artistry period to feel bigger than me and like to feel like it's it's pointing towards something that that isn't just about me alone. I think the album is very much like wrestling with all of the, like the feelings that we all kind of experienced during COVID, like the uncertainty, the doubt, the like angst, uh, you know, uh, and I think that I wanted to leave the project on a hopeful note. So um, I think that's what she really, she provides, she instills hope in me, her legacy instills hope in me. So I wanted to leave the listener with that. I love that. And thank you so much else for, ta- for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. Totally. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. I, I you've been so great with all the, you know, knowledge that you've provided, especially with the industry and the percentages and, and like all the, like the business that I don't think a lot of people want even quite understand. I don't even understand. It's hard. It's it's I believe it's designed to be un, very, very difficult to understand. So, yeah, you are well, not alone and yeah. I'm learning every day. So, but well, yeah, pre- check out my splice video. My, yeah, my I appreciate plug. it. That's so cool. Um, and I have one more question for you. I want to know yes. if you have any advice for aspiring mm-hmm. artists. Well, yeah, to that end, I think, you know, I think that aspiring artists should just really center their craft and their education first. And I think that that comes with like, you know, I feel like sometimes we focus too much on like, I want to be signed to this label, or I want this publication to write about me, or I want this person, you know, we have this perception that other people are going to put us on. And I think especially today, like you have to put yourself on first more than anything. And the best way to do that is just to make sure that your music is undeniable, and that you're educated enough in the music industry so that you don't Um, you know, there's so many pitfalls and obstacles to becoming successful. And so just making sure that you don't fall prey to those pitfalls and obstacles. And so just really invest in yourself. Like you are a worthy investment, um, invest in your gear, invest in your education to know how to operate that gear and don't feel like you have to rely on other people. I think sometimes artists feel like, oh, I'm not a real artist unless I'm in the studio or like I'm not a real artist until I'm signed to a publishing. It's like you are a real artist now and you have to really understand and invest in yourself that way so that when you're, you know, entering into relationships with collaborators or companies, you're your own self-possessed thing. No no one collaborator or one company makes you 
successful or it makes you who you are. It's like you have to realize yourself as much as possible and take responsibility for that. You know, I think like oftentimes artists, there's this perception like the rock star artist just like walks in three hours late and lays down a 16 and walks out and then everybody else does the work. But as an artist, like you need to be doing you need to be leading the charge. You're the leader. You need to be doing the most work. Um, And so how can you be as industrious and dedicated as you can so that you're attracting people who want to work alongside you and invest in you as well for your growth?